That was wonderful to hear that. <clears throat> Thank you. And thanks for the worship team again. They, um, first hymn, Praise the Lord Almighty. That's what we sang at our wedding. So that, that hymn always has a special place for us. So before we look at God's word, let's, uh, let's pray together. God, our Father, we are thankful for this day that you have set apart to rest. And uh, we are so thankful we want to start it off by worshiping you this morning. Father, I thank you for the world's beauty. I thank you for the breathtaking place where we live, um, the light of the sun this morning, the coolness of fall weather. Thank you for those bright red cherry tomatoes on my tomato vines that I saw this morning, and the smell of the herbs and the cilantro. Father, I just thank you for the glimpses of beauty that are, were on my way to church this morning, in people and in the landscape. And Father, I thank you for people who take their jobs seriously, uh, like the fire departments and, and the gas workers in our neighborhood last night, because of a leak that they got up and took, took care of that for our safety. I thank you for life's gracious things, like friends who build us up and encourage us and are always there to help. And I thank you for relatives who hold up under weight of poor health or life that didn't turn out the way they thought. And I thank you for the wonder of love and uh, how that motivates us and changes us and gives us meaning. But Father, I also recognize the evil and the sin in the world that seems to play havoc and wreck so many lives and relationships. I thank you for hearing about the Ephesians this morning and who brought goodness and beauty and truth to the world. And I just help, ask you to help us to do the same. If anyone has fallen, help us to sympathize rather than judge and condemn. Teach us how to bring comfort to broken hearts. And when the evening comes, Father, I ask that you grant that today, tonight, that we may feel that we have not wasted the day. So this morning, uh, we bring to you our sins for your forgiveness. We bring to you our hopes and intentions for your blessings. We bring our temptations and ask for your strength. We bring our duties and responsibilities and ask for your help. And Father, we also bring to you and hold before you our friends, our, those who are dear to us, our loved ones. We ask for that, for your care and protection. And so with that, Father, we bring with you, to you, a thankful and grateful heart for all that you have done. And we give you the glory in Jesus. Amen. We are continuing our series this morning on uh, taking the church seriously, uh, calling this series a space for grace. That's what I think that a church should be. It should be a space for grace. And uh, this morning we'll be looking at the family business. It's, um, the family is probably the most common metaphor in the New Testament used to describe what the church is and who it is and, and what they're supposed to be doing. And last week we kind of tried to look at the community and of course we're just touching, we're just skimming the surface on these messages. And uh, Today we just want to look at uh, the family business. Uh, there's an there's up-and-coming author, young author, named Samantha Beach. Uh, she's on a pastoral staff in a church in Austin, Texas. And uh, she's writing, she has a really unique perspective to talk about the young people, and the millennials, and Generation Z, and uh, in, in our culture today, 
why they're leaving the church, why they're leaving Christianity, how do we minister to them, how do we reach them. And uh, she has a very unique perspective. <clears throat> One, because she is a millennial, and uh, she, she can kind of relate to that age group. But another reason she has a unique perspective is that she, is, she grew up in Willow Creek Community Church. And uh, it's not that she just grew up there. Her mom was on staff there. Her dad, was, uh, she was on staff, I think, as the uh, artistic and drama director, which Willow Creek was famous for. And her, her dad was in charge of the whole missions program. So if you're not familiar with Willow Creek, it's probably the, the church that set the pattern for mega churches these days. Uh, at the time in its, in, its, uh, in its prime, it was probably the largest church in America, definitely the most visible, definitely the most famous. So not only does her perspective come because she's a millennial, but she comes as a product of one of the most famous visible churches in America. And uh, she knows what it's like to, to, to uh, what reaches her age group and what doesn't. And she tells this story in this new book she's written with her mom about specifically about that subject. And she tells this story about when she was in high school, she was a senior uh, in, in English class, she went to a large public high school, and uh, the teacher got up and he asked them, they were studying literature about a utopia village, you know, what would a, an ideal village look like, and, and did it ever exist in America, or did it ever exist in history? And it's kind of, you know, the, the, the what could be or what could have been sort of, sort of literature. And the teacher asked them, he says, what is, is there an institution that was intentional about meeting the needs of everybody in the community? Does an institution exist like that? And the class batted around, well, there's a hospital, and he goes, yeah, well, a hospital's great, but what about people's emotional needs or when they're dealing with grief and, and things like that? And, and, meta, and, you know, it's just a hospital. So they said, well, what else? Somebody else said a courthouse, and he says, well, what about something that, that not only you can't, even the poor can approach and get into the courthouse, where generally speaking, the courthouse is kind of for the people who can, who can afford to be there and pay their lawyers and things. And she said, finally, the class just went silent, and they couldn't think of anything else. And the teacher says, she doesn't say whether he was a believer or not. She just says he was the teacher. He says, well, really, the one institution that was designed to do that is the local church. And he says, the local church was designed to be, and even from the very beginning of the New Testament on through the, the, the days of the, of the colonies in America, was the hub of the villages and the towns. And everyone could go there and find help for whatever they need. Not necessarily from that church, but the church had connections everywhere. They partnered with every agency and other groups, donors and, and, uh, and lawyers, and everything. they knew where to go to get help. And so you would come naturally come to the church for that. And I find that image really compelling to me. That's really attractive to me, to, to think that not just maybe Shepherd of the Valley, but I'm talking about the the church here in Hood River, that this would be the place in our churches that because we're here, crime has gone down, there are visitors in the jails, that the fish bank, fish food bank has always got food there, that, uh, that there's legal help if needed, that there's opens for people with disability and, and access for different things. You know, that kind of idea just really is compelling to me. But what is surprising was here's a, a senior in high school who grew up in a Christian home, was a product of one of the most famous churches in America, and that didn't occur to her. The church did not enter her mind. She was thinking of all the way of something else. And I think maybe part of that is maybe we have abandoned sort of the family business. 
So what is the family business? Well, you'll get on any church's website, almost any, including ours, and, and you'll see a mission statement. <clears throat> well, Jesus already gave us the mission statement, and as a missionary, we know that passage backwards and forwards. Every missionary has preached at least once on this passage in Matthew 28. We call it the Great Commission, where Jesus says, All power on heaven and earth has been given unto me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded to you, and I will be with you to the end of the age. We know that. It's, in, it's ingrained in our minds. And that great commission, we usually think of that passage, but it is repeated in all four Gospels, and is repeated in the book of Acts, where Jesus tells the disciples, go to wait for me in Jerusalem, and then <clears throat> the power will come upon you, and you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the family business. Okay, we all agree on that. What does that mean? <laughs> what do we do with that? Well, that's what we're going to look at a little bit this morning. And before we get into deeper into what that family business is, I want to mention that there's three essentials for carrying on the family business before we start to kind of, kind of unpack it a little bit, for carrying out the family business. First of all, it requires the right foundation. We must have the right foundation. Jesus is the irreplaceable foundation of the church. No other foundation. The mission, as, as noble as that is, as important as that is, the mission does not take the place of the foundation. Jesus Christ is the foundation. And Paul is very clear, not just in Ephesians, but in all the New Testament, he is all very Christocentric. He never loses sight that Christ is the foundation for all this. We cannot replace Jesus with the mission. And sometimes I feel like you get churches that they, they, it almost feels like they're trying to out-mission each other. And missional church is kind of a, a modern catchphrase these days. You'll hear talk, people talk about, well, we're a missional church. Well, I'm all for it. As a missionary, I'm all for being a missional church. I'm all for that. The problem is, is if, it gets, if it starts to replace the foundation, that if we start to replace the mission, the task, replace the person with the task, then we're just another organization. Because that's what organizations do. They rally around. They're united by the task. We are united by the person. Starbucks is very successful at selling coffee. And how many churches look at that and go, that was, an, that was a very good strategy. Maybe we ought to adapt, adopt that strategy. The way they sell coffee, we can use that strategy to sell Jesus. And so we often attract, adopt that, that policy, those practices, those strategies, but then we just become an, an ordinary organization. The temple in Jerusalem is what brought all the Jews together. Whether you were in the part of the diaspora, you lived in Galilee, or wherever you were, Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem was what brought the Jews together. Well, the Gospels tell us that now Jesus has replaced the temple. You remember when Jesus said that uh, I will destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it back up and John tells us straight out he's talking about himself. That now Jesus is where heaven and earth meet. And just as the Jews were united around the temple, we are now united around the temple. We cannot replace the temple with a task. As important as that task is, as important as that mission is, we cannot replace the person with the mission. 
the foundation must remain the same. Family business requires unity within the family. It requires unity. That's what Ephesians is all about, those first three chapters. It's all about the unity that brings the Jews and the Gentiles together, whole community. What the, what the world would see was, was a group of people that was full of rage and hate and hostility and envy and anger. Now they can look at a, at a picture of all these people coming together, being healed, all those divisions being healed. And that's why it requires so, that's why it's so important and that's why it's so grievous when it breaks down. Because we are to preview the coming fullness of the kingdom of God. We are to preview that. We're like the movie trailer that, that, that shows you a glimpse of what life is like and what life can be like with the hostilities falling by the wayside, divisions falling by the wayside. We are to provide a preview of the heavenly kingdom, not a mirror of the earthly one. We are to provide a glimpse of the fullness of the kingdom, not try to preserve the earthly ones that are going to go away anyway. That unity is important, and they need to reach and see us and say all those divisions were all gone. Now, we may have to call into question some of our assumptions about our culture and about the way we think, the way we were brought up. If I grew up in the segregated South, but if I had been born in the time of slavery in the South, I can't guarantee that I would think any differently. You could walk into a church in those days and maybe there would be some black people in those churches, but they'd be in the hot areas in the balcony or on the, or on the outside. They weren't allowed to sit in with the white folks. And if I'd been born back then, I might have thought the same thing. I could have had that blind spot just like anybody else. Well, that's what Paul tells the Corinthians because they're doing the same thing. They just naturally divide it between rich people and poor people, the aristocrats and the, and the common people. And Paul is telling them, says, you need to step back, slow down, question some of those assumptions. Are your cultural assumptions reflecting God's vision for the kingdom? And what people should look at us, they would be able to see those divisions of, of um, rich and poor, male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, young, old, Native, immigrant, black, white, liberal, conservative, whatever division we have in our culture, they ought to be able to look at us and see how those things have been healed. We are, again, we are to reflect that, not mirror our culture. We are to give people a glimpse of what God's vision for the kingdom is to be like. And that depends, and that has an effect on the family business. It is a unity Kind of thing. Sue and I loved being missionaries, but one of the things I hated about being a missionary was raising support. Uh, one of my colleagues, Jim Eberline, he used to call it the um, the uh, ten cup routine, where you go from church to chop with, with your tin cup. And yeah, we kind of joke about it. And none, none of the mission. Well, I take that back. I was saying none of the missionaries liked it. I did know one who liked it. And uh, he always had the newest computers and the nice, you know, all those kind of things. And uh, he, had a, he just had a knack for it. He was good at it, you know. I was terrible at it. I didn't like it at all. But what it did teach me is that mission, the mission, the family business is a collective effort. 
It cannot be done by one person. It cannot be done by one congregation. It just can't. It needs to be done by the body of Christ. Everyone. And finally, the third essential is that the family business will sometimes require discomfort. We will get questions that we're not prepared to answer. We will get confrontations that maybe will make us feel uncomfortable. And as a general rule, those of us, now that we live in the 21st century, we like comforts, no doubt. We try to make, get chairs that are as comfortable as possible instead of those hard pews. We like comfort. But sometimes this will be uncomfortable. I just saw an article this last week about how flights have actually gotten, in, in a way, less safe because of technology has basically created the airplane to fly by itself. And the pilots are under-challenged. And so they kind of get complacent. And so when things do go wrong, they don't handle it quite as well because they haven't been trained and they're under-challenged to do it. I even heard, and part of the story was this, was a story about two, a pilot and a co-pilot who actually got into a fist fight in the cockpit. That the plane was flying by itself, and who knows what it was about, I don't know, but they got into a fist fight in the cockpit, but the plane was flying by itself. If they, were, if they weren't bored, or if they're a little bit uncomfortable, I don't think that would have happened. So maybe we need to make them a little bit, you know, less comfortable in the cockpit. But the family business is like that. Sometimes it will require discomfort. Relocation, uncomfortable conversations, uncomfortable confrontations, things like that. So what is the family business? This is how I define it. The family business is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the good of the world. It is to make G disciples of Jesus Christ for the good of the world. That means its objective of the family business are apprentice, is apprentices, not assimilation. When we have the idea of make disciples, we're not even sure what that means. He says make disciples. He doesn't say make believers. He doesn't say make converts. He doesn't say try to get people to ask Jesus into their heart as their personal Lord and Savior. He says make disciples. This is what he's getting at. And it's pretty, pretty clear, actually. It's kind of obvious uh, what this is and once we kind of understand it. Uh, most of us know what pyramid schemes are, where it starts with one and, with, and the idea is you keep recruiting all these people. And the problem with that is the guy at the top makes all the money and the guys on the bottom make very, very little. And sooner or later, these pyramid schemes collapse because they're really not selling a product. They're really not accomplishing anything. They're just kind of there. They're part of the machinery. Well, sometimes that happens in Christian world, too, where we, you know, I saw this a chart like this in college, and I saw it in seminary, where the spiritual multiplication, where if you, you disciple two, and you won two people to Christ, and then those two people won two, and pretty much, basically, in 15 years, the whole world would become Christian. That was the idea, which, which is a great thing, great thing to think about. But the problem is, it got to be where it was just about assimilating, getting them into the machinery, getting them into the church. It does nobody no good just to stick somebody in a church. The church that exists for its own advancement, sooner or later, will collapse. We don't exist just for our own advancement. We exist to make disciples, apprentices. So what is a disciple? And I say it's very clear. And you ask people if they're a disciple, and sometimes they'll, they'll hem and haw, and they go, well, I don't know, because they're, they're kind of uptight. I'm not sure I'll make the final cut, 
or um, you know, maybe uh, I don't know if I'm elect or not, or I'm predestined or not. Or some people say, well, I don't know, I really, I really am caught up in sin, so I don't know if I'm a disciple or not, or, or I'm not good enough. Those are useless questions. Useless questions. Stop asking them. Because we don't know the answers. But the question, are you a disciple of Jesus or not, that's pretty easy to answer. Because that's all it is, an apprentice. An apprentice is someone who wants to be with someone else to be capable of doing what that person does or become what that person is. That's all a disciple is. That's all an apprentice is. That's what the word disciple means, an apprentice. You have people who want to apprentice being a lawyer or they'll apprentice a politician because they want to, they want to be like him or want to do what they're doing or a lawyer or a doctor or a veterinarian or a contractor or a carpenter. They'll apprentice. And we ask the question, I'm going to use Paul here as an example. You ask somebody, is he, a, is he an apprentice of Dr. Dr. Armadine? Well, the person would be, should be able to say yes or no pretty easily. Or like Joe Murphy in our church, for example, are you an apprentice of Joe as a carpenter or a contractor? That's a pretty easy question to answer, yes or no. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you do everything. You can be a raw, incompetent beginner, but still be a disciple. Jesus corrected his disciples all the time. Sometimes you almost feel like he's bawling them out. But he never rejected them. They're still disciples. And we can be pretty incompetent disciples, but we're still a disciple. So what does Jesus do best? Jesus lives in the kingdom of God. He is the best at living in the kingdom of God. So if we want to learn how to live within the kingdom of God, we need to be Jesus' apprentices. We need to learn from him. That's what he said when he means, he said, follow me. We need to learn from him. We need to be with him, and we need to learn from him. We need to do the kind of things he does. We need to be the kind of person he is. It doesn't mean do the exact same things he does. I have yet to open the eyes of blind. I've yet to walk on water. But he, the idea is I live my life if Jesus were living my life. Does that make sense? I want to live my life as if Jesus were me. And I can tell you with all the confidence in the world that you, in the midst of your whole life, in the midst of your work, in the midst of your relationships, you are exactly what God wants. You are to live your life the way Jesus would live it. That's what an apprentice is. And we have this really weird idea that somehow people in the pastorate or in full-time Christian work, they're better disciples or something like that. Well, all you have to do is pick up a newspaper these days and read about scandals, and you go, that ain't true. That's just not true. I live my life, this is my life that I live, and I try to live it the way Jesus would live it. Am I good at it? Sometimes maybe, oftentimes not. I'm still raw, I'm still incompetent, I'm still a beginner, but that's what an apprentice is, is to live it. Brother Lawrence, if you haven't read Brother Lawrence's book, uh, Practicing the Presence of, of God, it's great. Actually, it's not his book, it's mainly about letters he's written. It's mainly letters he's written and people write about him. 
He says we'd have no difference between prayer and work. It should be the same. He said we do our work for the sake of God, not for the sake of us. That's all it is. That's what it is to be a disciple. So the scope of the family business is cosmic. And we say, we used to have these divisions, oh, oh the church, this church is all about evangelism and this church is all about social justice, but they're not real because it really needs to be winning people to Christ, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's so broad. It's cosmic. It's, it's huge. It goes on and on. It's not narrow. A narrow mission means we're going to have narrow disciples. Every now and then we'll hear somebody say, I want God to break my heart with what breaks his heart. And that sounds very noble and very sentimental and very nice. But I have a question. What in this broken world does not break God's heart? It all breaks his heart. This, we're talking about the person who notices every single sparrow. We can't just save souls and ignore bodies. We come as a package, soul and body. And so the, the scope of all this is, is huge, it's cosmic, it's universal. We, don't, we can't take the Sermon on the Mount here when we're in church or with other Christians and then not take it with us to our work or to our, our family reunions or our, our businesses or whatever else. We can't, it's all or nothing. We take the Sermon on the Mount with us everywhere. That we can't just save souls and ignore bodies. It's living where we are. You don't need to change your circumstances in order to change the world. I've used this illustration before because it's close to us. My, my brother-in-law, Sue's brother, he was always going to be a lawyer. And he came to Christ in a dramatic way. He had a motorcycle accident and uh, came to Christ through the ministry of a nurse. And he was sort of dramatically saved. Total turnaround for Mike. And he wanted to serve God, so he says, to serve God, I need to be a pastor. So he went to seminary, and he became a pastor. And he was a good pastor, really good pastor. And then he was even a better teacher. He taught at Cedarville University. Great teacher. Did he make a mistake? I don't know. All I'm saying is that he could have made a, also a huge impact as a lawyer, as he did as a teacher or a pastor. And I think he might have been a lot happier doing it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We are all participating in God's mission, living life, doing work, engaging in our relationships, loving and serving our families as part of the family business. So how do I get in on this? Well, first of all, it begins with being a disciple ourselves. It begins with having an encounter, a, a transformation encounter with Jesus Christ. That's where it all begins. And then knowing that we're not alone in this. It's not just me and Jesus. That we have together a, a family here. That we come together to ponder that, to celebrate it, to try to make sense of it, to try to make meaning of the world. We share stories. We, we, in, we talk about how to, imply, how to apply it and the implications of our experience. And that's exactly what Paul is telling the Ephesians here. He's saying, be rooted with Christ dwelling inside of you. Be rooted in the love of God. And, says, and then the message will go from generation to generation, from millennial to millennial. He starts off with the verse, chapters 1 through 3. He starts off just talking about being transformed on the inside, that we are rooted in love for the sake of others. 
And then he begins in chapter 4 telling them, then you will be a light in a dark world. You will be imitators of God in a God-forsaken world. So it all starts here in the heart. This rhythm of, of maturing and growing and intimacy and being transformed, your spirit being transformed, and then taking that transformation for the good of the world, wherever you are. The chronology, I think, is here is important. I think Paul lays out his letters like this for a reason, that it begins with our own personal growth. It begins with our own transformational experience, our own encounter with Jesus himself, and then it goes out. And there's this rhythm of in. It, the, the journey inward precedes the journey outward. And then we can tell the story. <clears throat> We can tell the story of our encounter with Jesus and how Jesus changed us, how Jesus transformed us. We are telling a story. We're not selling an insurance policy. And when I say that, I mean that we don't need a track or a pamphlet or even special training on how to do evangelism. Those are, all those things are good. But we just tell our story of how Jesus has changed us, how Jesus has given us a new, new life, has given us hope, has helped us see the world in a different way, that it's changed our worldview, that our own spiritual formation then becomes a product of the family business. It starts here, precedes here, and moves outward in our lives. And I keep thinking, surely, surely, we can, we can be the hands and feet of Jesus without always telling people they're wrong. We can be the hands and feet of Jesus without condemning. We can do that. We can be that person. That we can explain why Christ is within us. It's simply a matter of sharing your faith. It's generosity. It's generous giving. It's peacemaking. It's justice seeking. It's engaging in relationship. And yes, there's this tension of inward, outward, but that's one of the beautiful paradoxes that we have in the scriptures that our inward being affects our mission. We have this, this, this tension of, of sharing and praying. We have this paradox of generous giving and peacemaking and justice seeking, of loving neighbor and loving God, of solitude and community, of silence and the spoken word, of prayer and action, discerning God's will, doing God's will, of rest and work. It's all this, this, this dichotomy, this paradoxes that we do. This is the Christian life. And this is the family business. And we impact the people around us. I never said it would be easy. This is never easy. Paul never said it would be easy. Jesus never said it would be easy. It's always going to be difficult. And it feels maybe more difficult now than it has in the past. Uh, Chuck Carlson sent me an article this week from the Pew Research Center that basically said that in a few decades that Christians will now be, will then be the minority in America. That the largest growing group, largest growing religious group are the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, the ones who check none on religious affiliation. That is now the fastest growing group in America. And yes, it's hard and it, it's, it, people are no longer looking at the Bible for spiritual and moral wisdom. Um, they, they, we feel like maybe we've been moved to the edges of the public square and so we can cluck our tongues and, and point fingers and we lament and we can, we can feel like we can cry persecution. We're persecuted. 
and uh, we try to understand, and people will say, well, it's because we take Jesus too seriously, the people can't handle it out there. Well, I would say, what if it's the other way around? What if it's backwards? What if we're not taking Jesus seriously? Because the gospel is attractive. What if we're not taking Jesus seriously? What if the culture's judgment on us is because we ignore Jesus? That we keep him here in the church, but when we move in other areas of life, we kind of lose it. We say it doesn't apply out there. What if it's because we don't take Jesus seriously? I said this before that I think a lot of Christians pray this prayer but without admitting it. Our Father who art in heaven, just stay there. Because we like for our God to be sequestered off somewhere in some corner. We don't want him to be center stage because then it gets too messy. But what if we prayed, our Father who art in heaven, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done in my life as it is in heaven. Then it gets, then it gets sketchy. Then I might have to change. Then I might have to change my worldview. I might have to change my priorities. That is different. So we can approach the family business in a legalistic way. That I'll do what I have to do. I'll do the minimum. And if we approach it in a legalistic way where we see the Bible as this manual let down from heaven or just a bunch of rules and regulations of how we're, how we're to do this or that and how we're to do this in the church or how we're supposed to do this in my life, etc., then the family business becomes absurd and it becomes impossible. We cannot do it. But we need to approach it with love. A love for the Savior. A love for the Master. If we approach it for the love, with the love of the Master, then everything changes. It no longer becomes absurd. It no longer becomes impossible. If we approach it with a legalistic way of just rules, then we will just do the bare minimum. Or if we go beyond that, we may do it, but we'll do it with resentment. We won't have freedom. We won't have joy. But we approach it with love for the master. Jesus put it this way, seek first the kingdom. Do that first. And then all those other things, the justice you seek, the mercy you need, the grace you enjoy, the hope you're absolutely starving for, all of that will come with it. It will all come with it. But we approach it by loving the Savior. And the family business then becomes a joy. 